In the book of Revelation, chapter 17, beginning at verse 1, the Bible says, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials. And he spoke with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. The judgment of the great what? Whore that sitteth upon many waters. Now, one moment, beloved. The word whore, is that strong language? Yes. Does anybody know what a whore is? Generally speaking. A prostitute, that's a, that's, is, that a, is that an acceptable word? It's uh, someone that is unfaithful in the relationship, is that an acceptable word? Beloved, what does a woman represent in Bible prophecy? Amen. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 2, the Bible says, I have likened the daughter of Zion, my people, unto a comely and delicate what? Woman. So when we're talking about a comely and delicate, pure, keyword, pure woman, then we're talking about God's people. Amen? What happens when rather than talking about a pure woman, we begin to talk about what the Bible calls a whore? Is that a pure woman? That's an impure. Amen? So rather than being God's pure church, it is another church. Is that clear? We're talking about another church here in Revelation chapter 17. The Bible says, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters. Verse 2. With whom the kings of the earth, who beloved? The kings of the earth have committed fornication. Now I asked you a moment ago if we knew what the word whore implied, what it meant. Strong language, but nevertheless Bible language. The word whore implies an illicit relationship with someone that is not your spouse. Isn't that right? So here we have a church, the Bible says, that is guilty of fornication with what the Bible calls the kings of the earth. Woman in Bible prophecy represents a church. Kings of the earth rule the kingdoms of the earth. Isn't that right? So then if we're talking about a church, follow me, beloved. A church that has an illicit relationship with the kings or the kingdoms of the earth, we're talking about a relationship known as church and state. Have we been talking about church and state over and over the past couple of nights? I don't want you to miss this, beloved. It's very important in our generation. The Bible says that there would be a church in our days that is guilty of fornication with the kings of the earth. Now, why would the Bible call the joining of church and state fornication. Isn't that a strong word? Is that a strong word, beloved? That's a very strong word. Why would the Bible in Revelation chapter 17 refer to this relationship as fornication? Do you remember when Jesus said, give unto Caesar, who? The things that are Caesar's. Give unto God, who? The things that are God. Do you know that in those very words, Jesus declared the principle of the Protestant Reformation, which was the separation of church and state. Church and state separation is not an idea that originates with you and I. It was spoken by the very mouth of Jesus. In fact, all throughout the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 3, 4, 5, you will find that there's a repetitive theme of kingdoms ending up in trouble, Babylon specifically, 
because of the joining of church and state. Daniel chapter 2, we read about an image that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of, amen? Did you know that Daniel continues to say that Nebuchadnezzar built a golden image off of that dream? And when the golden image was built, Nebuchadnezzar commanded all of his kingdom that at the sound of the Babylonian music, they were all to bow down and do what? Worship. Is it the responsibility or the prerogative of earthly kingdoms to command our worship? Separation of church and state. Is it the prerogative of earthly kingdoms to command God's people how or when or in what way to worship? Jesus said, separate them. Give unto Caesar the civil power, the things that are his. That is why as Christians we pay taxes. We may not like it, but we pay our taxes. Amen? Give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but give to God the things that are God. Jesus was trying to set a principle that the things which belong to Caesar and the things which belong to God are not one and the same. They're, guess what? Separate. The past couple of nights, we've been talking about something called the mark of the beast. And we saw that the mark of the beast was Sunday worship enforced by law. Is there a person tonight who's keeping Sunday that has the mark of the beast? No, beloved. We have to understand this. It is not until, according to Revelation chapter 13, the second beast, it is not until the United States of America legislates Sunday worship that it becomes a mark of the beast issue. Now, am I saying that if you know better, you ought not to do better? No, beloved, if you know better, then by the grace of God, you ought to do better. Praise the Lord. But when you're speaking about the mark of the beast, you're talking about a legislative issue that is the direct fruit of a joining of church and state in these United States of America. We're back in Revelation 17 and verse 2, where the Bible says, speaking of this church, this woman, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. There's an illicit relationship that Jesus does not uh, ordain. And the inhabitants of the earth have been made what? Drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Do you remember that beast of Revelation chapter 13? The beast that has a mark? that looked like a leopard, that had seven heads and ten horns. Here in Revelation chapter 17, Jesus is giving you another picture of the exact same kingdom. He says, however, in verse 3, that he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw not a beast, but a woman. Talk to me, beloved. What is a woman in Bible prophecy? All right, so follow on. It says, I saw a church sitting upon a scarlet-colored beast. On our screen, we have the depiction. Uh, I think it's a really good picture. I wouldn't have used it if I didn't think so. Uh, it's a picture of a woman, a church, sitting on top of a beast. How many of you have ever ridden horses in your lifetime? Praise God. When you ride the horse... Who's in control? Is it you or is it the horse? Talk to me, beloved. Make it plain. My brother said, hopefully you're in charge. You better hold the reins. Amen. <laughs> Normally, beloved, the person that is sitting on top of the animal is the one in control. Isn't that right? 
That's the way that it works. Now, the Bible says that in Revelation chapter 17, in our generation, we would see a woman symbolizing a, in the writer's position on top of a scarlet covered beast. What was a beast symbolic of in Bible prophecy? Talk to me. What was that? Amen. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 23, the Bible says the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth. So we know that in Bible prophecy, whenever we see a beast, we should be thinking of a now question, if a woman symbolizes a church, I'm being repetitive on purpose, beloved. If a woman symbolizes a church, but this woman that we see in Revelation 17 is not under a beast, it is riding in the master's position on top of this beast, then there's a relationship between church and church and state in which the woman, the church, is the one in control. Can we see that? Is it clear? Revelation chapter 17, go back to verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a church, a woman, sitting upon a scarlet-colored beast or kingdom full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon, the great and the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Now, interesting, in verse 5, the Bible says that this church is called Mystery Babylon the Great, the what? Mother of harlots. Now, if Babylon is a mother, it implies she has children, right? It implies that she has children. But the Bible says that Babylon, this mother, is a, uh, is a, is a, a mother of what the Bible calls harlots. Harlots is another word for... I know we don't like these words, beloved. It's all right. It's another word for whore or prostitute. It's the same word that it's using uh, in Revelation 17 and verse 1. But the Bible is saying that the same way that this church is, there are other churches that she calls her offspring that are just the same. In verse 6, the Bible says, And I saw the woman drunk. What was she, beloved? Drunken with the blood of the saints. Question. Uh, I'll be honest with you. When I was in the world a long time ago, Brother Paul has tasted uh, liquor before. Is there anyone in this room who has ever in their youth or at any time in their life tasted liquor before? Question. How much does it take for an individual to get drunk? And I'm talking bad, beloved. Throwing up and all of these things. How, how long does it take? My sister said a little bit. I praise the Lord. I praise the Lord because that means she's not used to it. For an individual that's an alcoholic, now Brother Paul was never that, by the grace of God, deliverance, amen? But for an individual who is an alcoholic, do you suppose that it would be enough to take one little sip? What about two? Three? It would have to be a considerable amount based on the tolerance, isn't that right? The Bible says that this church is drunk with the blood of the saints. Now, beloved, for an individual to be drunk, that's a lot of tolerance of blood. You must have seen a lot of blood in your history, beloved. Are you seeing the point? The Bible said, are we seeing the point? All right. You got to talk to me, beloved, or I'll fear that I'm losing you. 
The Bible says in chapter 17 and verse 6, I saw this woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Do you remember in Revelation chapter 14, speaking of the second angel, the Bible said, there followed another angel saying what? Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city because... She made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The second angel calls God's people that are still in Babylon out of Babylon because of this drunken condition that is caused by what the Bible calls the wine of Babylon. The what of Babylon? What's the title of tonight's subject? I'm going to ask you before you see what the wine is. How many of you, by show of hands, just generally thinking on whatever it is you think the subject is about, how many of you want the bread? Amen. How many of us want the wine? I'm not even going to look because by the grace of God, we're all going to get the bread tonight. Amen? I have no wine to serve you, beloved. If you came sober, you're going to leave even more sober. Praise the Lord. The Bible says, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Now that makes sense. Normally, when an individual is drunken with wine or with alcohol or anything that uh, ruins their senses, it is easy to fall. Isn't that right? A person can get drunk and they stumble. And the more they drink, the more they drink. Before they know it, they're passed out on the floor. Isn't that right? Babylon finds herself fallen because of this thing called wine. Now, interestingly enough, In the book of Daniel chapter 5, there was a Babylonian king by the name of Belshazzar. And the reason I bring him up is because I want us to understand that history repeats itself. Did you know that the, uh, the wise man, Solomon, said that there is nothing new under the sun? That if you could get a good glance at history, you could better understand not only your present day, but the things that are to come. Beloved, you'll see that as you're studying Bible prophecy... There is historic truth, there is present truth, and there is truth that is yet to be fulfilled. Beloved, we want present truth this evening, things that are applicable to us right now. What do you say? But we also need the historic truth, don't we? In the book of Daniel chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, speaking of that, uh, that interesting meeting of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, the Bible says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords, and he drank what? Wine before the thousands. Belshazzar, while he had tasted the wine, commanded. What did Belshazzar do? Beloved, I I don't mean to be cryptic in any type of way. I want you to understand that whenever Babylon gets involved with wine, there are commands that come as a result. Whenever Babylon gets drunk with wine, there are laws that come as a result. Are you following me? Belshazzar, while he yet tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and the silver what? Vessels, which, was his, uh, which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem that the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines might drink the wine therein. Now, I want you to understand what's happening here. 
Belshazzar, the Babylonian king. What king? The Babylonian king had wine. What did he have? But he wanted to drink the wine out of what the Bible calls the vessels which were in the temple of Jerusalem. The vessels that were conquered, uh, that were taken from Jerusalem when it was conquered by his father Nebuchadnezzar, those special cups, those holy cups set aside for holy use, Belshazzar desired to drink wine out of those vessels. Did you know that the Bible refers to you and I as the vessels of the Lord? The Bible says that we hold this truth, this treasure, in earthen vessels. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, turn there with me. I want you to see this from your Bible. The Bible says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure where? In earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. The Bible speaks of Christ in you, the hope of glory. But the Bible refers to you and I as the earthen vessels that hold that treasure. In the book of Genesis, beloved, what did God make man out of? Dust, and dust is of the earth, is it not? So then Adam has always been an earthen vessel for the glory of God, isn't that so? In this generation in which we live, are you and I seeking to have Christ in us, the hope of glory? Then we are earthen what? Vessels. The Bible said that the Babylonian king took the vessels out of the temple and desired to place wine in those vessels, beloved. If the vessels represent you and I, and the wine comes from the Babylonian kingdom, then what we're seeing again is a uniting of church and state. Do you see the symbol? Should I repeat myself? Talk to me, beloved. Should I repeat myself? The Bible says that you and I hold the treasure in earthen vessels. Adam, who was a man like you and I, was made from the dust of the ground. He was an earthen vessel. So whenever we mix the wine of Babylon with the vessels that belong unto the Lord, we're talking about touching the people of God with that which came from Babylon, the wine. It is a symbolic joining of church and state. Where did the wine come from? What kingdom? Babylon. Is that a kingdom or was it a kingdom? What do the vessels represent? You and I. D does it represent you and I, beloved? That's God's church, amen? Are you God's church? Yes. So then if the kingdom that gave the wine was Babylon, kingdom, and the vessels in which they desired to place that wine represented God's people, then we're seeing a symbolic joining of church and... Is it clearer yet? It might not be too clear yet. Let's continue, beloved. What was the result of Nebuchadnezzar's seeking to join Babylonian wine with what was holy and belonged only to the Lord? The Bible says, In the same weekend came forth fingers of a... 
in the same hour, is that more immediate than in the same weekend? Do you suppose God takes this matter seriously? He answered right away, beloved. The Bible says, in the same hour came forth the fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And this is the writing that was written, Mine, Mine, Tekel Upharsin. And this is the interpretation of the thing. Mine means God has numbered your kingdom and has what? Now what's interesting about this declaration to the Babylonian king is Mine, which means the kingdom is finished or fallen, was not said once, it was said how many times? Babylon is? Babylon is? History repeats itself. The Bible says, Mine, Mine, Tekel, Upharisin, this is the interpretation. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balance and you are found wanting. Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And in that very night, beloved, was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. And Darius, the Median, took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. Beloved, Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5 sought to take wine. Take what? and blend it with something holy that had nothing to do with that. Whenever we take what the Bible calls wine and blend it with that which God has set aside for holy use, we're looking at a symbolic joining of church and state. Now, I keep saying the word symbolic because I'm not saying that you and I are cups. Amen? 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 Symbolic, beloved. We're the Bible is a symbolic book and very, uh, when it comes to prophecy, there are many things that are symbolic. Now, my question is, what is the influence of that wine? In the book of Revelation chapter 1, now, before I go there, isn't that a beautiful picture? It is a beautiful picture, sister. Have you ever imagined yourself at the feet of King Jesus and King Jesus placing a crown of life upon your head? You know, the Bible says that once we get there, Jesus is going to do that, yes. But everyone who gets there, we're so wrapped up in Christ. Do you know what we do with those crowns? We take them off of our heads and we cast them right at the feet of Jesus. This is why the Bible calls him the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 1, Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings, plural, of the earth, unto him, that is Christ, that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us, what, beloved? Kings and priests. Have you accepted the blood of the Lamb? Don't be bashful, beloved. Yes. Has Christ made you kings and queens and priests tonight? Follow the thought. If you are a king and queen, if you have received the blood of Jesus Christ, did you know the Bible said, it is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink what? Wine. Now, I want you to put the picture together in your mind because in Revelation chapter 17, this church that rides the beast drunks the entire world. She gets the entire world drunk with this spiritual wine. 
The Bible told you you were kings, you are queens, we are priests, but it is not for kings, it is not for us, beloved, to drink that wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink the wine and forget the law of God and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. What does wine symbolize in the Bible? I have the text on the screen, but I'd rather talk with you. Does anybody know what wine symbolizes in the Bible? I heard blood. Amen. You remember at communion when Jesus had the, the, he had the wine and he had the bread? He said, the bread is my body, the wine is what? Now, were the apostles vampires? Is that what the Bible is saying? No, beloved. We have to understand what we're talking about because there are people who read the Bible and if you take it exactly as it reads sometimes, not understanding how the Bible unfolds itself, you can come to some very strange opinions. The body and the blood of Christ were symbolized, they were what? Symbolized by the bread and by the wine. Isn't that right? Now question. At that special night, do you suppose that Peter got drunk. Do you think Jesus got drunk? I'll make it general. Do you suppose any of the disciples were drunk from that wine? It's important that we know this, beloved. None of the wine that Jesus offered is ever, keyword, fermented. Does anybody know what the word fermented means? Mingled with alcohol. Aged you know, if you age grapes for a certain amount of time, that's not grape juice you want, beloved. Not unless you yourself want to be fallen. The juice or the, well, now I'm giving away answers. The wine that Jesus offers is better said to be grape juice. Is that clear? Because it doesn't have the effect of taking away the mind. It never has the effect of making us fall. The wine that Jesus offers, symbolic of his blood, coupled with the bread that represents his life, only ever sobers the man. In the world, there's these things uh, called AA meetings. Are we familiar with that? Alcoholics what? Anonymous. Did you know that in AA meetings, they talk with people who have had a history of, of, of just drinking wine uncontrollably to the point that the wine and the, the alcohol and the liquor has controlled their lives. And one of the things that they often say uh, I remember this is something, I, I can't prove that this is fact, but it's something that is said, is that the more bread you drink, or that you eat rather, it absorbs the alcohol in the stomach. Now, is that true? My sister says no. I don't know anything about that. It does not. So then a man can drink wine and eat bread, but they don't belong together. Can that man still throw up that bread? He can throw up, can't he? That man can still find himself drunk. Beloved, listen, the only bread that I know that can sober a man from wine is the bread we're talking about tonight. His name is Jesus. He is the bread that came down from heaven. He is the one who said, man must not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Do you know that this uh, wine that Babylon has, that drunkens the entire world, the only way that God can help the drunken people is if he has a people with their baskets full of bread. Now they're missing what I'm saying, Sister Ashley, because I've been talking about bread every night. The only people 
who can help a people in Babylon become sober are those who have a relationship with the bread of heaven, beloved. We need to understand the word of God, the doctrine that Jesus has given us. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 28, verses 7 through 9, the Bible says that God is going to teach a specific people. Turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28. We're going to begin at verse 7, rather. The Bible says, But they also have erred through wine. They have erred through what, beloved? And through strong drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of the wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision and they stumble or fall in judgment. For all of the tables are full of vomit and filthiness so that there is no clean place. Who shall God teach knowledge? Who shall he make to understand the what? Doctrine. Them that are weaned from the milk and are drawn from the breast. The Bible says that the wine is to be contrasted with the doctrine that God teaches. Proverbs chapter 4 gives us further proof. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 2. Turning your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. Chapter 4. And verse 2. Are we there? I heard no. I'll have mercy. We're turning to Proverbs chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verse 2. The Bible says, For I give you good, what? Doctrine. Forsake ye not my law. The Bible says that the influence of good doctrine is that we will forsake not the law of God. Amen? Did you see that from your Bible? Look back to the screen, beloved, because the Bible said that the influence of this thing called wine is that it would make us drink and forget the law. So there is a doctrine that leads to becoming law-abiding citizens of God's kingdom, and there is a wine that leads to the opposite. Wine and doctrine, beloved, can be contrasted right there. There is a true wine represented by the blood of Jesus. There is a true doctrine that comes from his word in the same way Revelation chapter 17 speaks of a church who drunkens the entire world with this wine, this false doctrine. Are there many doctrines floating around in the wind today? Did we talk about the secret rapture in our first night? Did we talk about it, beloved? Have you found it in your Bibles yet? I know you haven't, beloved, because I told you and you, you thought I was joking, but the secret rapture is so secret, the Bible knows nothing about it. There is nothing in the scripture that speaks about a secret rapture. Now, does the Bible speak of a rapture being caught up to meet with Jesus? Is that a secret? The Bible says every eye will. So then how many of us will have to text our mothers and our fathers to let them know Jesus has come when he comes? No one. Every eye will see him. We want to talk about the sobering influence of the bread of life. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Do we want the mouth of God to speak his word tonight? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. 
And he that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Beloved, we don't want the wine of Babylon. We don't want the false doctrines of Babylon. We want the bread of life, the word of truth. Is that true tonight? Your question to me should be, Brother Paul, you've talked about the bread of life. For nearly 45 minutes now, we've talked about the bread of life. You talk about bread a lot. What is the wine? Is that a good question? What is the wine of Babylon? On our screen, I've listed only nine. Beloved, there, there, there isn't enough space on any screen for me to list all of the false doctrines that are plaguing God's people today. There are some strange things out there this evening. I've shown you uh, through, all throughout this series, there are people today that tattoo 666 on their bodies because they believe it brings them closer to the Lord Christ Jesus. There are people today who claim different men that have shown up in different places as the Messiah. There are people today who believe that if you take honey and dip it in your forehead, that you are saved by grace. Now, did Jesus require us to put honey on our foreheads? Did Jesus warn us that there would be false Christs? Beloved, there are many things, all of which we cannot discuss tonight, but I want us to see nine. How many? Nine interesting uh, popular beliefs today, which the Bible calls the wine or the false doctrine of Babylon. Number one, the commandments of God are no longer binding. Are we familiar with that one? Have we heard that the law of God has been nailed to the cross? Why did Jesus die, beloved? Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, ye shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from there. John chapter 1 and verse 29, he is the Lamb of God that taketh away the? Why did Jesus die? Romans 6, 23, because the wages of sin is death. That's the reason Jesus died. What is sin? 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. Now, I don't want to just spit Bible text at you, beloved, but I'm, I'm checking to see where we are. I want us to grow together. What do you say? 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, the Bible says, He that committed sin transgresses also the law, because sin is the transgression of the law. Why did Jesus die? Give me the three-letter word. What is sin, beloved? So then Jesus died because you and I don't keep the law. If Jesus died because you and I have no power to keep the law in and of ourselves, how can we take the same law that we broke and nail it to the cross? If Jesus died for sin, beloved, if Jesus died because of law transgression, how do we take the very law that demanded his death and hang it on the cross where he died to free us from those very sins? But it's a very popular theology today. Did you know that? Is there anyone in this room that is uh, a sinner? Yes. Now, now don't mistake me raising, raising two hands that time for being joy. The only joy I have in the fact that I'm a sinner is that there is blood in heaven that is able to cleanse a man even like me, beloved. There is a fountain, is there not? Filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners... So am I qualified? Sinners like me, plunged beneath that flood, can lose all of our guilty stains. I raise both hands at the question, am I a sinner? But there is a savior from sin. Amen? Is there anyone in this room that will enter heaven in that condition? Because the death is not enough. The blood from that death must cleanse us from that sin. Isn't that right? 
Somebody says, wait a second, Brother Paul, did you just say the death of Jesus was not enough? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the death of Jesus had purpose. And when we throw away the purpose of the death, then the death in our case does not work. Jesus did not die because the planet needed blood on the soil. Jesus died because sinners needed the blood for cleansing. For what, beloved? So then every sinner in this room, myself included, by the grace of God, when we enter those pearly gates, we don't enter as sinners, we enter as law-abiding citizens. Do you want proof from your Bible that that is true? Beloved, do we want proof? Have we, have, we, have we reached the point where we're taking a man's word, or do you want the proof? Revelation 22. I, I wouldn't give you my word even if you asked. Revelation chapter 22. It's the very last chapter of the Bible. Revelation chapter 22. The Bible says at verse 12, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do what? His commandments. That they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Your Bible tells you that unless Jesus cleanses us of sin, we have no right to that tree and we will not enter into the gates. But I'm thankful that we're not dealing with impossibilities this evening. The fact that we have come to Jesus means we must leave with rest from our works and divine faith in his ability to make us just what the blood of Jesus says that we can be. Beloved, I trust Jesus this evening. What about you? The world teaches that the commandments of God are no longer binding. They have also taught Sunday sacredness. Have we spent some time there? Have we seen historically what the Baptists have said about where that came? What the churches of Jesus Christ have said about where that came? Is that in our Bibles? No, beloved. We talked about the secret rapture. This one here, number four, is a big one, beloved. It is called the immortality of the soul. Eternal torment in hell and purgatory. Have you ever heard of purgatory before? Have you ever spoken with somebody that believes in purgatory before? Beloved, they are some of the hardest people to win because the picture of God in their head is so unlovely. I mean, think about it. God wants to take me into heaven and give me mansions and streets of gold and, and, and precious fruit and to help me live forever, all the while I have the knowledge that somewhere down in the core of the earth, Satan is there with his pitchfork, his pitchfork flipping my aunts and my cousins as though they're not well done. Beloved, think about it. Could you live in a place called heaven knowing that your loved one is frying forever while you're singing and walking on streets of gold? Is that a lovely picture of God? Do you think people care what the Bible has to say? The truth about who God is? You better believe it, beloved. Trust me. When you run into people like that who have those theologies, that wine has drunk in them. It's hard to teach them about Christ until you first show them exactly who he is. You can't talk to people like that, beloved, about which day is the Sabbath. That's not how you begin. You can't talk to people like that, beloved, about uh, whether or not we should be wearing jewelry or whether or not we should be eating and drinking a specific way. Those type of people don't want to hear anything about that. The question on the heart of the world is, does Jesus care? Because I was taught about a place called purgatory where my aunts and uncles will be burning forever and I'm expected to sing hallelujah on streets of gold. 
If we're honest with ourselves, beloved, that's not a heaven any of us want to enter in, now is it? Be honest. What is reincarnation? Reincarnation is the thought and the opinion that after a man dies, what happens? That they'll come back as something else. Isn't that so? I've had people tell me, you must have been a lion in another life. Or a frog. Or, 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 or a, a, a pig or a horse. And I look at these people and I say, now... When I wake up in the morning, my first thought is to get on my knees and pray. I have never yet woken up in the morning and desired to say oink, or to roar, or to neigh, or any of those things. Now, I'm not trying to... It is funny, but what I want us to understand, beloved, is that people actually believe this stuff today. Do you know that when you reject the fact that you came from the hand of your Creator, it is very easy to think that you came from apes. Very easy to think that you came from amphibians and from sharks and whatever other kind of nonsense is out there in the world. People believe that we descended from goats. Now when Jesus said, many sheep have I, that's not what he meant. Many sheep have I that are not of this fold. In order to reach these people, we have to have an answer for these type of doctrines. Does anybody know where the doctrine of reincarnation uh, actually began? That's the answer. Does anybody know where the doctrine of reincarnation actually began? I want us to think about it. Reincarnation is the rebirth of a soul into a new body. It's also known as transmigration of the soul. Or in other words, a man can be born as a baby today. He grows up. He becomes a man. He gets old. He dies, and then the cycle continues if he's lucky enough not to become that pig I mentioned a moment ago. That is reincarnation, beloved. Now, does anybody know where that idea came from? Somebody says it came from Scooby-Doo. No, that's not what I'm saying. The point of these pictures is for you to see that our children are also uh, exposed to these opinions. Did you know that? I remember growing up in Scooby-Doo was, was a famous cartoon. On the other side of the screen, you have a cartoon by the name of Tom and Jerry. How many of you know, know Tom and Jerry? And in Tom and Jerry, that was a very persistent cat. And multiple times, this cat would die chasing this poor little mouse. And every time he died, his soul would rise up out of his body. Isn't that right? Do you know that as our children are watching these things, the question begins to come to them, does the soul ever actually die? With a foundation such as that, whether it be in cartoons or in movies or whatever it is that we're watching or reading, do you know that it becomes increasingly difficult to convince our children the Bible truth that the soul that sinneth, it shall die? Where did this doctrine originate, beloved? In the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, the Bible said, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said. Who said, beloved? 
Now give me Bible. Who is the serpent according to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7 through 8? Satan. It's the same dragon. Satan said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. Do you know that right there out of the mouth of Satan in the Garden of Eden was the first sermon ever preached on that doctrine called the immortality of the soul? The idea that we don't actually die from sin, but that we become amphibians and pigs and whatever else there is in an afterlife, all of those things stem from those simple words, ye shall not surely die. But what does the Bible say? Did you know in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 through 16, the Bible tells you that God alone has immortality? How many of you are immortal? Somebody says, I haven't tried. Well, don't. The Bible says that God alone has immortality. That would make you and I, what? Mortal. It means we can die, doesn't it? The Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20, that the soul that sinneth, it shall die. So is there any such thing as an immortal soul? Not if a soul can die, beloved. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, speaking of Adam, that when God made Adam, he took the dust of the ground and he took the breath of life and man became a living soul. Is a soul a green orb that comes out of your body at death? No. Somebody says it might be purple. Is that right? The Bible says that man became a living soul. Do you know that we don't have a soul? We are souls. And the fact that so many in the Christian world don't understand that is why this doctrine of the immortality of the soul is so prevalent today. Children believe in that thing today because of Tom and Jerry, because of Scooby-Doo, because of, well, because of me and you. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We're coming to a close. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. What book did I say? Ecclesiastes chapter 9. It's the book right after Proverbs. In the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 5 and 6. Say amen when you're with me. The Bible says, For the living know that they shall die. But the dead know how much? Not anything. Neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred. Does that mean that if I had an enemy that died yesterday, does he hate me today? The Bible says that when we die, we know how much. The Bible says our love goes away. Our hatred goes away. There is no such thing as ghosts following us around because of the way we lived in our life. Did you know that? Now, does the Bible speak of angels and demons? Ghosts is a completely other thing, beloved. Ghosts come from that very doctrine spoken of in Genesis chapter 3, the doctrine of the immortality of the soul. Let's finish the text. It says, also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. There are many people who have lost loved ones that they never reconciled with. 
And they've been having hard times, especially in this pandemic. And they can't help but wonder to themselves, am I having a hard time because Aunt Sally is so upset with me? Beloved, does the Bible support that belief? Does the Bible support the belief that the dead are upset with us? Does the Bible support the belief that the dead are envious of us or trying to get back at us? Now that might not seem like an amazing truth to you and I because we've talked about this at some point before, but there are people who are imprisoned to that very thought right now. Did you know that? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 54, that at the coming of Jesus, we must put on immortality. We must put on what? Now, if we put on immortality at the coming of Christ, did we have immortality before that? So then the doctrine of the immortality of the soul is not Bible, is it? I've asked you many times, if the Bible says it, we want it, but if the Bible does not say it, what do we do with it? Throw it away, beloved. Did you know that that thought, that understanding, that, that opinion, that souls don't actually die, but they live forever, is what lies at the foundation of another doctrine called the doctrine of eternal torment? I asked you if you've spoken to anybody who believes in purgatory. It would be impossible to believe in purgatory if you understood that when a person dies, the soul that sinneth shall surely die. Does God have a furnace today where sinners burn forever? Will he have one when he comes? Beloved, I'm asking you trick questions on purpose. I want to make sure you're awake. We're closing. Does God have a furnace where he burns sinners tonight? Will God have a furnace where he burns sinners when he comes? Sinners won't burn? Won't burn? I told you it was a trick question. Sinners will burn, isn't that right? Will sinners burn forever? Follow the text. The Bible says, now that's a very interesting picture there because we often think of Satan as the king of hell. Satan is somewhere in the center of the earth with a pitchfork, flipping, uh, flipping sinners and making sure that they're well done. Beloved, that's not Bible. We're told in the book of Revelation, in the third angel's message, that those who receive the mark of the beast would be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and that the smoke of their torment ascendeth up for how long? Forever and ever. Now, if you had never studied your Bible before and you read that text, would you naturally assume that God does in fact have a royal barbecue where sinners will be burning forever and ever. Can you see how you can come to that conclusion? Can you see it? I'm going to move right through. Did you know the Bible said in Jude verse 7, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of what kind of fire? The Bible says Sodom and Gomorrah suffered the vengeance of what kind of fire? Is Sodom and Gomorrah burning anywhere on the planet today? Are you following the thought, beloved? If Sodom and Gomorrah suffered eternal fire, but they're not burning today, then what the Bible is telling you is when we talk about burning forever and ever, it means that the results of the burning last, guess how? Forever and ever. The fire burns you up entirely, and there's nothing left. Now somebody says, wait a second, Brother Paul. 
I'm not sure that's any more of a loving picture of God because I still burn. Did you know the Bible says, our God is a consuming fire? Is there anyone in this room who wants to live with Jesus? I don't know if you heard what I said. The Bible says that our God is a consuming fire. So then in order for you and I to live with a consuming fire, you and I would have to be, guess what? Fire proof. Beloved, I'm telling you right now, Jesus is not dangerous to you and I. He is dangerous to the sin that we cling to. Wherever sin is, God must consume it, beloved. And if you and I cling to sin at the end of the day, the very fire meant only for your sin. The sin is going to take you and I out right along with it. Beloved, I told you about that grenade, didn't I? Has the pin gone back in it or is it still dangerous tonight? Are we willing to let it go? That's the question. The Bible says in Malachi chapter 4, clarifying the issue, Behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, it shall leave of them neither root nor branch. When that fire comes, beloved, there is not a sinner, not even Satan himself, that is going to be left standing. So you can rest assured that 1,000 years after you have been in the kingdom of God, your aunt, your uncle, your best friend, whoever it was that rejected Christ, they're not somewhere in God's kingdom burning forever and ever. The Bible says in John chapter 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever does what? Believeth should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life is for those that believe. Isn't that right? Do you know that in order for someone to burn forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever, they would have to have everlasting life themselves in order to burn? So when we believe in that doctrine, what we're saying is that God, it's, uh, God is looking past the fact that they have rejected him, the fact that they don't believe in him. He has granted them everlasting life for the simple purpose of punishing them all throughout eternity. That is not Bible, beloved. Everlasting life, according to John 3.16, is only for those that believe. God will not give a man everlasting life just for the purpose of, of roasting him throughout all eternity. That is not the God we serve. The Bible says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Do you believe that? Last question. I'm not, I'm not even going to be able to go into any text, beloved. Where do we go when we die? Have you ever heard of a, a show called Touched by an Angel? You ever watched it? Beloved, I grew up on that thing. Let me tell you, I watched just about every episode there was. Now, while the episodes are touching, there are many morals, right? There are also many doctrines there that are very dangerous. Have you ever seen the movie, Heaven is for Real? There are many people today who have lost loved ones that think that their loved ones are either in hell right now or in heaven with Jesus. Guess when? The Bible teaches us, beloved, that at the coming of Christ, there will be a resurrection of his saints from the dead. Now, my question is, if God has his people right now in heaven, think about it. If you were in heaven right now, rather than in Battle Creek Tabernacle, walking on streets of gold, probably swimming in the, in the river of life, I don't know what that's like, eating fruit from the tree, spending time with your personal guardian angel, hearing all of those crazy stories about when you were young, you know the stories. 
If you were having that experience right now and Jesus decided to resurrect you from the dead, what sense does that make? I'm going to resurrect you to take you where you already were. Does that make sense to you? Beloved, do you know that if we were in heaven right now, or rather if our dead relatives were in heaven right now, there'd be no purpose of a resurrection? The very fact that the Bible preaches a first and a second resurrection tells us that there is not a soul in heaven right now apart from the very special few that the Bible does mention. The Bible speaks of Moses, does it not? The Bible speaks of Elijah. The Bible speaks of a man named Enoch who walked so closely with God that one day God just took him home. There are special cases in the Bible. But as long as there is a resurrection, we can be sure that there are people right under our feet waiting for the second coming of Jesus. In the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 14, the, the, uh, the, the disciple Peter spoke up on the day of Pentecost and he said that even in that day, David, a man after God's own heart, was in the grave with them at that time. Is David a man you expect to see in heaven? The Bible teaches that won't happen until the resurrection. I have no time for any of this. We're going to close right here, beloved. I want us to understand we have to guard the minds of our youth. Guard the minds of who? Beloved, there are things that you would never even imagine that the televisions are teaching our young children and it is determining whether or not they will receive the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is from the word. Give me the Bible. Holy message shining. Thy light shall guide me in the narrow way, precept and promise, law and love combining until night shall vanish in eternal day. It is the Bible that our children need tonight. Do you know what they'll need tomorrow morning? Who said Tom and Jerry? <laughs> Beloved, I don't mean to pick on you. I just want it to be very clear. What we place in the mind has all of the difference in this generation. You know, the Bible says that in order to be baptized, one must first believe. A baby straight out of the womb, do they have the capacity of believing in Jesus or rejecting Jesus? So how can they be baptized, beloved? There are people today who believe that in order for a man to be baptized, he has to be sprinkled on his head as though he was uh, being salted, beloved. It's like you're cooking or something. You take the, the water and you just... Is that Bible baptism? Do you know that the Bible says at the baptism of Jesus that when he... Well, I'm giving the answer. The Bible said that when Jesus was baptized, he came straight forward out of the water. Now, if the man came out of the water, where do you suppose he went first? Biblical baptism goes by a word known as immersion, beloved. The body goes into the water entirely, symbolizing the death of the old man, and we come up by the grace of God, walking in newness of life. This is Bible. And we're living in a generation, beloved, where these things have to be made plain to our loved ones, our neighbors, our friends, and even our foes. God winks at ignorance. But when light has come, there's choice to be made. Do we want the bread of life? Are there any who want the wine? Praise God. <laughs>